0: Study tonight from God's Word in Mark chapter 9. If you have a Bible and want to join me there, uh, we're going to preach a message entitled Our Unending Need for Jesus. And uh, my aim this evening is to remind you of our unending need for Jesus. Study from the scripture a little bit like what it looks like when we're not abiding in Christ and not aware of our need, and then of course the sufficiency of Jesus. In providing for our need. I think what we'll see uh, together as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, here is what it looks like when we do not abide in Christ. Now, all of us remember what Jesus says that uh, uh, apart from Him we can do nothing. He's the vine where the branches abide in me, Jesus says. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus, as we'll see in Mark 9, with Peter, James, and John, we'll walk down from the Mount of Transfiguration and right into a kind of tense scene, a stressful scene, uh, a scene where uh, something really dramatic is going on, and a scene where someone really needs help, and until Jesus gets there, it seems like nobody can really help. And so if you've got your Bible there, Mark chapter 9, I want you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, and you'll see what I mean uh, as we study together what it means to abide in Christ and have an ongoing or unending need for Jesus. So Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen, referring back to the Transfiguration, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, "'What are you arguing with them about?' And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood, and it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father Of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we see in this passage of Scripture that apart from you, we'll teach the wrong things about the kingdom. Apart from Jesus, the spiritual forces of darkness will thrive. Apart from Jesus, the desperate will not be helped. Apart from Jesus, we will give ourselves over to unending arguments, but little prayerfulness. So I pray for my church family that we are a people who abide in Christ. Now use your word for our good tonight, uh, and thank you that we have both an unending need for Jesus and an eternal Jesus for our need. So give us grace to uh, be helped by your word and transformed by your word in Jesus' name amen we of course you may be seated and as we come down the mountain with jesus from the mount of transfiguration he steps right back into the real world and aren't you thankful we have a real savior for the real world has anybody this week had everything go right has anybody this week have everything go well Uh, Jesus and what I'm thankful for is we have a savior who really enters the real world a real world of your real stresses your real challenges your real heartaches your real uncertainty and we want to point out as we often do as we study God's word I've got three points for you and I want to begin here is that we need Jesus to faithfully remind us of the cross and his resurrection As they're coming down the mountain, I want you to notice that Peter and James and John bring something up. And I think they've got a particular hope in their mind and in their heart. And if you bear with me for a moment, it's a particular hope that you have in your heart as well, most likely. Again, it says that as they were coming down the mountain. He charged them not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they do keep the matter to themselves, But they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, what have they just seen on the Mount of Transfiguration? They've just seen Jesus Christ in all his glory and power, right? And so they've got this hope. We've talked about this before, that their hope is the Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem and drive the Romans out. Now, think about where they are and what they've seen and they've got this hope rising up in them that, of course, this is a conqueror and this is a king. He's glorious. So, just, just to put that obvious, it's common sense. Could you ever conceive, had you seen what they saw, that this Jesus would ever suffer or die? Now, remember where we've been. Let's see a few things here together. Mark chapter 9, verse 12. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things. Now, just to put it all together, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, have a hope that the kingdom of God is going to come, but all this talk Jesus has made of Jesus suffering and dying, now they've seen him transfigured, they get this thought in their mind, okay, well, we can put that aside because he's a king and he's glorious and he's going to wipe the Romans out. This week... Uh, Julie was getting my help with some things at the house Uh, she was making some bread and I came home from work and she had some errands to run and she was going to leave and so when I came in the door she told me and here's how it goes and she said I've got some bread in the oven it needs to be in the oven another 10 minutes and then you need to take it out of the oven let it sit for 10 minutes and after it sat for 10 minutes you take the bread out of the pan can you do that I said I think I can handle that so she got her things together and she left and I walked into the kitchen and what she had just told me before she left, she had then written down. And right there at the oven is take the bread out and it specifies the time. And then it's written out after 10 minutes, you put it on the stovetop. And then 10 more minutes, you let it out. I said, okay, she's, she's told me. Now she's written it out. And at 10 minutes on the dot, guess what happened? Phone rang. Guess who it was? It was Julie. Guess what she wanted to talk about? Ten minutes has gone by. I need you now to go to the oven, take the bread out of the oven, and put it on in ten more minutes. And I just told her, I, I, I got it. I think I can handle this one. Now, she knows me. When it comes to the kitchen, there's not much that I can do. So, so she feels it's obvious a need to make sure I know what the plan is. Now, look with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. Mark chapter 9 verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee and he began to teach the disciples saying to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of sinful, in the hands of men they will kill him after 3 days he will rise. Look at Mark chapter 10 verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. After three days, he will rise i have to tell you once tell you twice write it out call you up and tell you again why why now when they ask is elijah to come what are they getting at who had they just seen on the mount of transfiguration they just seen elijah what's the implication Hey, the kingdom of God's coming with power. Let's put it together. If you're tracking with me, Mark 9, verse 1. Truly, this is before they walk up the Mount of Transfiguration. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So I believe as Peter and James and John are walking down the mountain, they might have it in their mind that what Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 9 now supersedes what he had said about suffering, if that makes sense. Maybe he's no longer going to suffer. Maybe we've kind of moved past that. Remember, that's why Peter confronted him to begin with. When Jesus said he's going to suffer, Peter pulled him aside and said, may it never be. We always have a hope that we cling to other than the cross and the resurrection. But here's what Jesus knows. There is no other hope other than the cross and the resurrection. And in particular, we are very much prone to cling to a hope that I'll use the word here, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's what Peter and James and John want. They want power. But Jesus reminds us faithfully of the cross and his resurrection. The disciples hope for a Messiah who's not the suffering servant. And you can go back and look at those references that I just gave you when he tells them once, twice, three times in a particular way. In all of those, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, there's two things prophesied, the Messiah, conquering king, and then a suffering servant. What the disciples don't quite understand is that those two individuals, so to speak, are one and the same. Christ is the suffering servant, and he's also the Messiah. The disciples, this is important, the disciples hope for an earthly political kingdom in which they can then exert power and influence. Look with me to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. I just simply want you to see how deep this false hope goes in their lives because as they were, so are we. James and John, the son of Zebedee, it's Mark ten thirty-five, came up to him and said to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want for me to do? Or, I'm sorry, what do you want me to do for you? And, and they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. as a ransom for many. Now we've read a good bit of scripture in our study in order to demonstrate that the disciples are strongly drawn to the wrong kind of kingdom. And we can be very much like them. Power and greatness in the kingdom of God are not used like they are in the earthly kingdoms. We tend to believe that the acquisition of power will bring us peace and security. Friends, the world Do you believe this? The world is passing away. The world is passing away. So the desire and admiration for earthly power is so great in us that we need, we have an unending need for Jesus to remind us of the cross and the resurrection. When we do not abide in Christ we begin to long and thirst for power and position. So our Lord commanded us that when we gather together, we do so in remembrance of him, and specifically the cross and the resurrection. So again, they're coming down the mountain of transfiguration. They got this, hey, we just saw Elijah. We know that Elijah appears before the kingdom of God comes in power. Are we ready to go down the mountain and take over, is what their hope is? And Jesus in hearing this, immediately his response is, the Son of Man will suffer. And all by the way, so did Elijah, and so did the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. If you think of what he's saying is, John the Baptist prepared the way, and they did to him whatever they pleased. John the Baptist did not go around cutting off heads. He actually had his head cut off. That's how it's going to work as the kingdom of God advances. So first, we need Jesus to faithfully remind us of the cross and the resurrection how that can bear you up in this day and in any day is that Jesus Jesus did not pursue your salvation by means insufficient for you to be saved he didn't aim too low he didn't come short nothing but the shed blood of Jesus is enough for you to be forgiven of your sins What a Savior. Second, we see that we need Jesus to cultivate compassion for others in us. We need Jesus to cultivate compassion for others in us. Uh, Two times a word is used here uh, in the section as Jesus comes down. It says, verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, ran up to him and greeted him, and he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And then we have to get all the way down to verse 14 before, I'm sorry, verse 16 says, someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you. So if you can see the scene, this dad has a son with desperate needs, but by the time Jesus arrives, the father and his son are sort of lost in the midst of the crowd and what is the crowd doing they're arguing so can you see this we need to apply this to your life I need to apply this to my life it's very quick to get caught up in arguing and lose sight of human beings who have real needs it's very easy for that to happen in our lives right now so we need Jesus to cultivate compassion for us In others and can we think for just a moment the hardships that this dad has faced the description we're given is that the demons sometimes burn the child throw him in the fire other times throw the child in the water there's no pain there's no pain like the pain of your child hurting that's the last time this dad had rest When's the last time this dad was able to lay his head on his pillow at night and go to sleep thinking everything's going to be all right? Think of the stress he's been under, the emotional stress, the physical stress, the mental stress, the sleepless nights. And now he's come to the disciples, and the disciples haven't been able to help him. We'll get to why that's so in in a moment. And then we see the spiritual forces of darkness are at work. Now, a question I have for you, of course, is, Are the spiritual forces of darkness that work in the convulsions of the child or or in the arguments of the scribes and the disciples? Which one? And of course the point is that it's both. Both in the strong convulsions, but also in the disciples and the scribes arguing. Now this is one of the most sober things I see in Scripture, and in the Gospels we see it again and again. Children... And the passage we're reading here child is a little child. Children are often the targets of the spiritual forces of wickedness. It's everybody listening is every grandparent, parent, aunt, uncle, everybody listening? Little children are often the targets of the spiritual forces of wickedness. And right now, right now, we live in a generation in which children are often abandoned, abused, overlooked, trafficked. And here we see clearly that demons are real and they target children. And demonic powers thrive when compassion is weak. Compassion in the scripture always leads to action. What kinds of actions is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ called to demonstrate towards little ones, towards children? I believe that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should lead the way in protecting children, fostering children, adopting children, Praying for children, sheltering children, prioritizing children. The Bible says that children are a heritage from the Lord. Here's the word that Jesus uses here. He says, bring the child to me. Bring him to me. For many of us, I I think our testimony, not for all of us, but for many of us, our testimony would be that God drew you to himself when you were a child. How many of you that was true? When you were a child, God drew you to himself. And I know this would be my testimony. He did so through compassionate people who welcome you in. Oh, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to cultivate compassion in us. And the third one, third one will be this. We need Jesus to shepherd us away from fruitless arguing and unto fruitful praying. In just a moment, we're going to look at a couple of passages of scripture. One's in 1 Thessalonians and one's in Colossians. If you want to, if you got a Bible and want to go on and be turning to those uh, books, 1 Thessalonians and Colossians in order to emphasize that we need Jesus to shepherd us away from fruitless arguing and unto fruitful praying. I'm really asking um, God to do a work in, in my church, in my heart, in our church family, uh, when it comes to a p- prayer. This whole section concludes with Jesus saying, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples have cast out demons in the past. We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, right? We've seen it. They've, they've been sent out by Jesus in the past, and they've cast demons out. Now, we get to this time, and they're not able to. Why not? Well, one of the reasons, I believe, is so is simply this is a spiritual principle for your life. You cannot fight today's battles with yesterday's energy or focus. When you abide in Christ, do you abide in Christ yesterday or today? You have to abide in Christ right now. Now, we are a people, and I, I will open up the scripture and defend this doctrine to the end, who believe that once saved, always saved. We believe that. I believe that. I believe that because I believe the scripture teaches that. Romans 5, for example, while I was his enemy, Christ demonstrated his love for me, and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. If while I was his enemy, he he reconciled me by the death of his son, much more shall he save me from the wrath that is to come. And while I believe that once saved, always saved, there is such a thing as being filled with the Spirit. But it's not necessarily once filled, always filled. The filling of the Spirit is ongoing. And here we have disciples who previously have pushed back the darkness and now they're not. And if we just look at this section, what do we know? They're involved in arguments but not prayerfulness. I need our church family to hear this. I need to hear this. They were involved in arguments but not prayerfulness. So if you're there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this scripture will help you be shepherded away from fruitless arguing now as believers in Jesus we are called to defend the truth and be ambassadors of Jesus and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that we have but there's a difference between that and fruitless arguing 1st uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 11 Paul encourages us to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I think one of the things the scripture is teaching us is that we'll either have an argumentative spirit or a compassionate spirit. People to you will either be irritants or they'll be targets of grace. Grace and in particular, in particular, the people who most annoy you are likely to be the very ones that God desires for you to lavish grace upon. His phrase here, mind your own affairs, one commentator I read this week put it this way, uh, you can be a mind your own business person uh, when everyone around you is a share all their business people. Mind your own affairs. What are your own affairs, your family, your church, and what you really know about? And then Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account for which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, when Jesus walks down from the Mount of Transfiguration and enters the argument, I think what we can find here is he doesn't find his disciples being gracious or uh, speech seasoned with salt and if we go all the way back to that section they don't have steadfast prayer or watchfulness i sometimes hear people saying when it comes to their own speaking i don't have a filter what did colossians just tell us you need one right you need a filter and not just a filter the filter for us is the holy spirit here's the filter Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. There's your filter. But only such as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, let's get the diagnosis from Jesus in Mark chapter 9. What is the diagnosis for those who are quick to argue and slow to demonstrate compassion? What does he say? Verse 19, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now here's a biblical application for our lives right now. We've opened up the Bible. We're studying Mark 9. Here's an application question. Are you more quickly... And more likely to argue with others or compassionately serve others. Mark 9, 24 has one of my very favorite prayers in all the Bible. In all this whole section here, and we've read a right good number of verses. We just get one person. One person who approaches Jesus in what we might call the right way. And that's the dad. He says... Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And as I've studied the scripture uh, this week, one of the things I feel compelled with the Holy Spirit to, uh, to preach is we need a lot more dads like this dad. When we talk about the spiritual forces of wickedness attacking children, one of the obvious and most destructive ways... The spiritual forces of wickedness are attacking children right now are shoving aside, tearing apart, distracting, whatever verb we would use to describe it, dads, so that they're children who don't have dads like this man. Desperate to help his son. Dads who have humility... Dads who say, I'm going to go and pursue Jesus for the welfare of my child. And dads who are honest, it's an honest prayer. I believe. Help my unbelief. Well, I want to read one more passage of scripture from Luke chapter 9, if you want to be finding that before we close. It's going to be Luke's account of the same scene that we've been in. But I want to read to you from this commentary by uh, Danny Aiken. He writes Jesus responds with a powerful spiritual insight. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. The phrase this kind refers to casting out demons, or or, uh, the, the phrase this kind refers to casting out demons and all other spiritual conflicts of this nature. He's not saying some demon exorcisms require prayer, but others do not. He is saying that whenever we take to the spiritual battlefield, if we go in our own strength, pride, and self-sufficiency, we've lost the battle before it begins. Faith bridges the gap between divine omnipotence and human weakness, and that faith is experienced and exercised through prayer. Could this be why prayer is one of the most difficult of the spiritual disciplines could this be why we don't see greater things done in missions our churches and our personal lives is this why paul says in first thessalonians 5 17 pray without ceasing hang with me the power of prayer is obviously not going to be experienced if we don't pray Tim Keller observes that the prayer of the Father is characterized by honesty, helplessness, hopefulness, specificity, and passion. These character traits of believing prayer can be summed up in one word, humility. It all depends on Jesus. If he acts, I'm delivered. If he doesn't, I'm lost. Faith expressed in prayer says, I cannot have what I need in any other way well i asked you to turn to luke's gospel because he gives us a little detail that i find to be both precious and powerful and i want you to see it in luke 9 verse 42 while he was coming the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him but jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now what is astonishing? The majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration? Or the majesty of one who in humility comes down the Mount of Transfiguration and steps into the real world? And I, I believe we have a picture here of what the heart of God loves to do. Uh, I was reading recently a book and it put, put it away I've never really thought of before. We call these things miracles when God's divinity and power step into the fallenness of the world and do amazing work. But really, this is how it's supposed to be. The healings are demonstrations of how it's supposed to be. And I love to think about this dad who has had had this long struggle. How long has he been this way? You can hear his voice break, can't you? Since childhood. Got nowhere else to go, got nowhere to turn. And can you think of how deflating it must have been for this dad to come and finally he's found the disciples of Jesus and then it just breaks down into an argument between the scribes and 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 the disciples. And there are times I think this is what the unbelieving world sees in the church. Just these arguing, arguments. But no demonstration of compassion or power. But then Jesus steps in and, and I just love what it says and he, he gave him back. Gave his boy back. And can you picture the dad's face and he holds his son and the convulsions have stopped and the foaming has stopped and his son is well, made well. And they are astonished at the majesty of God. Oh, we need Jesus. I have an unending need for Jesus. In order, in order for this to be something more than momentary good. A good moment, but to be eternal, where fathers and sons and families and church family and the nations can forever be astonished at the majesty of God, Jesus has to go to Jerusalem, but not like Peter, James, and John have it in their motion the transfigured Jesus destroying the Romans. No, the transfigured Jesus will be the disfigured Jesus. He will go to the cross. We need Him to remind us again and again that salvation is by the cross and the resurrection. And we need Jesus. We need Jesus to cultivate in us real compassion for people. I don't want to spend my life exasperated over unending arguments. I want to leverage my life to extending the compassion of Christ to those who are hurting And we need the, we have an unending need for Jesus to shepherd us away from fruitless arguing unto fruitful praying. Now, what we see here is this glorious picture that Jesus gives the humble, desperate dad what he asked for. So here's where we'll conclude for tonight. If the Lord Jesus Christ were to give you, what you have humbly and desperately asked for this week, what would you have received from him? Here's where I'd love for us as a church family to approach this week together. May we in humility and in desperation ask him for an ongoing remembrance of his death, burial, and resurrection. If it's a political kingdom you're after, the arguments will never cease. If it's the kingdom of God that you build your life upon, the the compassionate, sacrificial service will be the testimony of our life. Let's ask God, let's ask Him for a compassionate heart that leads to sacrificial action. And let's ask God that He would shepherd us away from fruitless arguing and unto fruitful praying all of that summarized and let's ask God that we may be a people who abide in Christ let's stand together and we'll pray together great is the Lord and greatly to be praised I thank you for a savior who is Christ the Lord gloriously transfigured On the Mount of Transfiguration, gloriously disfigured at Mount Calvary, the suffering Son of Man is the Messiah. The conquering King is the suffering servant. Oh God, we live in a day where we so desperately need Jesus. And as our foundations are shaken, we may find that it's you who's doing the shaking in order to graciously shepherd us to build our lives on that which, of course, cannot be shaken. God, I thank you for my church family. What a privilege to proclaim the scriptures together. And God, now I ask for the Holy Spirit to take the word of God that we've studied tonight and apply it to our lives. Oh God, give us grace that we haven't just been hearers of the word only and deceiving ourselves, but we'll be doers. In Jesus' name, amen.